We are in Mark chapter 11 this evening. We're going to see what the Lord says about what's going on in our lives and in our world. It is Easter week. It's the week where we remember and commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his death on a Roman cross, and most importantly, his resurrection from the dead three days later. This evening, we're going to take a look at a familiar passage which shares with us an event that happened on the day after the triumphal entry. It happened on the Monday before the crucifixion. And on that day, Jesus entered into the temple and he cleansed it of the merchants, the money changers, and the moochers that were in there. Now, here's how we're going to draw application from our text tonight. We're going to draw it in a couple of different ways. First, we can parallel the principles that we find here in in our passage as our activity in the church. We can parallel us there within the gathering of believers. Much like how the Jews would come to the temple, they would gather together in the temple to worship the Lord. We are here as the congregation of God's people meeting together in a special way to worship God and draw near to Him. Now, second way we can parallel the principles of our passage is with our own lives as individuals. Because we see Jesus going in and He cleanses the temple. And when we read that, we remember what we are taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul speaks to us and he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so now, knowing what direction we're headed this evening, it's time to get into our actual text, which is Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, where we're going to parallel the principles of Jesus cleansing the tomb with our own lives and with our life as a church. And there we read this. So Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, it, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit. And we ask God that you would open our hearts, that you would calm our hearts and our thoughts, Lord, so that we can pour into your word and see all that you have for us, Lord, that we can learn something fresh and exciting this evening. And Lord, so that we can have a a greater desire to love and serve you Each and every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this is a passage that most of us have probably heard a number of times before. But tonight, I hope that we see something new. That we find some new insight and application from the Lord so that we leave this place having been brought nearer to God and more transformed by His amazing power. Even the most uh, frequently read passage can yield more and more and more results and more wealth into our lives, spiritually speaking, as we pour into it. The Lord's word never returns void, no matter if we've read a passage a hundred times or a thousand times or however many times, it is a mine that keeps on producing. And we desire to be more transformed by His power each time we come to His Word. And and really, that is what Easter is all about. It's about the power of God, not only for salvation, which is necessary for each of us, but it's also for our transformation 
as people who are living out our lives here on the earth so that we can glorify God and so that we can direct people to Him. And so what are we seeing here in Mark chapter 11? Our text opens and it says there in the first verse, So Jesus and His disciples, they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. Now, Jesus had come to the city the day before on Palm Sunday, and he had even gone into the temple that day. In fact, back in verse 11 of this chapter, we read this. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus had already gone into the temple. He had made an assessment, and then he came back the next day and took care of business. And what we learn there is that our God is a God who evaluates. He looks into my life and he says, okay, okay, Gene, here's what I want to do in your life. Here's what I've, here's how I've, you know, gifted you. Here's where I've placed you. Here's what I'm doing in your life. I'm going to evaluate where you're at and how usable you are. And and I'm going to, and here's what I want to do in there. And he looks at your life and he determines to change you and to change me from who we were into something remarkable, something wonderful. He evaluates. He says, okay, here's where I'm starting, a lump of clay. I'm going to take this lump of clay and I'm going to shape it. I'm going to turn it into a wonderful, beautiful, remarkable vessel for my glory. He then looks at the earth as a whole and he says, okay, I'm going to place my church throughout the world I'm going to lead my people to do my work in a way that will impact each community in a special way. That's why churches don't all have to do the same things. That's why different ministries don't work everywhere all the time. That's why, you know, our methodology can change depending on the time and the place. Our message never changes, but the method by which we minister to people can change because Jesus looks at the world and he evaluates and he sees what community we're in and he sees the state of the people, and he says, okay, well, here's what we need to do then. And we find this characteristic of God's evaluation all over the scriptures. Just think of the parable of the talents. The master comes and he says, okay, you guys work for me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to divvy out some talents to you. And then he comes back later after a period of time and he evaluates the work of his servants. God evaluates. He evaluates so that he can guide and so that he can transform and so that he can empower and so that he can correct us when we need it. In in this case, Jesus came into the temple on Palm Sunday and he saw what was happening and then he returned the next morning to correct that behavior. Now, who did he correct? Well, first it says that he drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. Now, we know these people as the merchants who had set up shop in God's house, and they were extorting the people who came to worship and came to sacrifice. They would take advantage of those who had come to meet with God, and they would say, oh, no, 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 you first have to convert your money to the temple standard, and we're going to charge you to do that. In fact, that was an unlawful fee that they were charging them. Or they would come and they would say, oh, you brought a lamb to be sacrificed today? That lamb, sorry, that lamb is disqualified, but luckily you can buy a pre-approved animal right over here, you know, for a small, large fee. Now, these were very serious offenses and abuses happening in the temple of the Lord. But for us this evening, again, we're going to look at these different groups of people on the spiritual level, and we, will, we should find application for ourselves individually and corporately as a church. And so first, Jesus drove out those 
who bought. Spiritually speaking, we could liken this group to those who simply try to buy their righteousness from the Lord. Now, as fallen human beings, it is possible for all of us to allow in an attitude of penance to seep into our relationship with Christ. And here's what I mean by that. I mean that in the sense that we sometimes can allow our relationship with God to cool to the point where it's no, more, not, no longer really about love, it's no longer really about personal interaction with our Savior, but it's more of a business transaction. Lord, I know I'm not really loving you the way I used to. I know we've cooled off a little bit. So here's the deal. I, I feel that tugging. I, I feel you calling at me and you know, I know I really, haven't really paid my temple tax. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go to church one extra time this week and we'll call it even. And, and in a sense, it's as if, you know, when you have that attitude, it's as if you're trying to buy your righteousness. It's as if I'm trying to buy my salvation from the Lord. But that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. That's not how our temple works. Not individually and not corporately as a church. Why? Because our salvation, our righteousness, is not something that we earn. It's not something that we purchase. It is a gift from God that we receive by grace through faith. It is not of works. And so if we try to purchase an indulgence from the Lord, as it were, that is in complete contradiction to the method of salvation that he has laid before us. And so an extra church service or some sort of you know, act of you know, penitence, as it were, we think of the Middle Ages when people were whipping themselves and you know, prostrating themselves and doing all these sorts of different things. Lord, I'm going to hurt myself so that you can you know, make me righteous and so that I can buy that salvation from you. Those things don't make us more righteous. Not at all. Going through the motions of Christianity out of guilt or out of tradition, that does not please the Lord. What did God say in Isaiah 1.11? He said, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And so in Isaiah's time, the people had left their love for God, but they were going through the motions of sacrifice in an effort to purchase their salvation from the Lord. Well, this is what we have to do. And so we'll go through the motions and we'll be able to say, well, look, I threw, I threw a ram at you. I, I threw a lamb at you. Well, you know, so, so there, I, I did, you know, what I was supposed to do in order to purchase my salvation. To that attitude, God says, hey, this isn't about works. This isn't about works at all. I, I, don't, I don't care about the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. This isn't about tallying off a checklist. You don't come to me through legalism. You don't come to me through tradition or works of penance. You come to me how? Through a relationship of love. That's how God wants us to approach him. Those who bought in the temple, in that sense, Jesus drove out. The second group, those who sold, were given the boot. Now, these extortioners had quite a racket going. Oh, you want to get to God? You want to come to the Lord? You want to have your sins atoned for? Guess what? You're going through me to do that. And you're going to pay a pretty penny in order to do it. These guys took advantage of those who came through the doors of the temple for their own profit. They were extorting them. Now, obviously, here at our church, we don't have quite the same arrangement as the Jews did back in the pre-crucifixion time of the temple. But there are still those in the church today at large who seek to capitalize off of God's people. 
We've seen it before. We certainly see this on a wide scale when we hear about the television evangelist who's taken millions of dollars and spent it on jets and palaces and all sorts of things like that. And so we see that and we say, okay, you extorted God's people. You said that they had to send in money in order to purchase favor from the Lord and then you extorted them. You put yourself between them and God and said only you could bless them and only you could do this for them. And then you took that money and you used it to buy these you know, uh, uh, temporal, sensual things. However, as we look inwardly, which is something that we always need to do, we don't want to just look out and say, well, yeah, that person's doing it. I don't do that. But if we look inwardly, we find that this type of attitude can, again, has a tendency to seep into our hearts if we're not careful, if we're not guarding against it. It can seep into the church in a different way. If we start seeing other Christians as fodder for our profit, if we use our church relationships to intimidate or to coerce people into doing things that benefit us, then we've moved into this area of selling in God's house. Now, we live in the greatest country in the world. However, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must in America shake the materialism that we are inundated with in our culture. Our lives are not about wealth. Life is not about luxury. Life is not about amassing fortunes for ourselves. No. Life is about much more than that. And so in a country like America, I love America. I don't want to live anywhere else. It is the greatest country in the world. However, we are Christians first and Americans second. And so if we live in a country like America, we as Christians, as people who love Jesus, must actively and intentionally drive out the lure of materialism and greed from our hearts and from our churches. And I'm speaking to myself first about this because it's hard. You're out there, you see the advertisements, you see the people around you, you see all these people, you know, you know upward mobility and buying things and doing all this stuff, and it's difficult. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, purchasing, a, a, you know, a, a cup from Starbucks. There's nothing wrong with going to Target. There's nothing wrong with these things. But the attitude of materialism is a dangerous one. It's a scary one. And it's one that we have to purposefully drive from our hearts so that it doesn't seep into our Christianity. Let's look at the second half of verse 15. It says, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. A lot of the same ideas here, but let me pause on this idea of of the money changers for just a moment. When Jewish men came into the temple, they had to pay a temple tribute tax as prescribed in the law of Moses. Now, these money changers, they were taking that commandment and they said, okay, you have to pay a temple tax because you're an Israelite man. And then they were charging a second fee for them to convert their money into the temple shekel. They were charging a second fee for the conversion of those funds. And not only was this unlawful, but it gives us another attitude that we should watch out for in our churches and in our own lives. Because as Christians, it is easy sometimes for us to take a person who wants to come to Jesus and say, that's great, that's wonderful. But if you want to come to Jesus, ooh, first you have to pay a toll. First you have to pay a temple tax to us. And then the burdens come out, right? And oftentimes we forget That transformation comes after the relationship with Jesus begins, not before it begins. And so if we're not careful, honestly, this can happen if we mean well, but if we're not careful, we start thinking that people need to reform so that they can be transformed. Oh, you want to become a Christian? Well, first you have to do the following ten things. First you have to change the following things about yourself and then 
Jesus will accept you. You must reform in order to be transformed. But the Lord is very clear in his word that the transformation of a person's life is up to him. It's not up to us. It's not up to our rules or our standards that we say, okay, if you do the following things and look a certain way and, and do this, this and the other thing, if you pay me my temple toll, then you're transformed. Jesus calls us just as we are to come to him so that he might bring beauty from ashes out of our lives. Now, our text continues. It says in verse 16, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. This is an interesting verse. Uh, Different translations that you guys have out there will have a slight variation on what exactly people were carrying there in the temple. Thus, commentators have a number of different views. Now, here are the two views on this verse that seem most likely to us and seem most likely to the majority of scholars. First view, as we read it in the New King James, Jesus would not allow people to carry wares through the temple. And so in this sense, we understand that God's house is not designed for our amusement. It's not designed for our entertainment. With this interpretation, this is how I look at it practically. It's as if you're at the baseball game, and what happened? Who's walking around? The guy with the peanuts, right? The guy with his wares, his food wares. He's walking around, and and he's hawking his stuff in the temple. You're sitting there, and you're listening to a psalm, like a good Israelite man or woman, and then you say, hey, two cotton candies over here. I'm ready for it. Peanuts over here, hot dogs over here. You you selling your wares, come on over here. I want to buy some of that stuff. The experience with God then became more of a consumer experience, a consumer outing, than a time of worship and devotion to the Creator. It, was a t- it became a time of self-service for the people as opposed to a time of humble adoration. Now, this one hits home for me because in my flesh I have this idea that within the church, if something's not to my liking, if something's not to my amusement, it must be because, what, the church has failed. That must be why. If something's not, you know, as entertaining as I think it should be, well, it must be because God has failed and the church has failed, and then so they should change that. If you were here for our, the video that we showed about tithing, it's, it's the guy in the cowboy hat. You know, I'd love to give you a little bit more, but, you know, Benji likes hymns. So if you want to sing a couple of hymns, well, then I can participate. It becomes more of that consumer outing. It must be because the church has failed. If things were going well, I'd always be pleased. I'd always be satiated. I I would always feel like a happy consumer. Why? Because the customer is always right, right? But this was the attitude that was seeping into the temple, and this is an attitude that, if we're not careful, can come into our relationship with God. But our relationship with the Lord and our gathering together as His church is not about consumerism. It's not about having all of my wants and my desires met. It's not about me being self-served at all. That's not what any of this is about. Much to the contrary, our lives and our gathering are about service and laboring together to glorify the Lord. Our congregation here at Calvary is about being a body that grows together and reaches out to demonstrate the love of our Savior, who came not to be served, but to serve. Our gathering and our lives are not about self-satisfaction, but about God glorification. Because God satisfies. And so when we are seeking for God's glory, then He will satisfy us in the way that we need. He will give us the things that we need. He will bless our lives with that abundant life that He talked about while He was on the earth. But there's a second interpretation of this verse here. 
It's an interesting one. Some scholars indicate that people were actually using the temple as a shortcut on their walk home. So they would go to the marketplace, they'd load up on baskets and they'd get all their stuff that they're buying and then they're walking home and, and, and rather than go walking around the temple, they just walked through the temple. It was their shortcut on the way home. And again, the application is very simple for us. God's house is not meant to be a shortcut for us. God's house is not a place where we cruise through on our way to where I really want to go. Hey, temple! I got some mandrakes here. I'm on my way home. If you all could get out of my way so that I could get there without having to stop. God's house is the place where we meet with our Savior in a special way, whether it's our gathering together as a congregation or our own lives, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your relationship with the Lord is, is meant to be something personal and something wonderful. It's not just a short stop on the way home. It's just not some compartment. Well, I'll get to that when I have to cut across the grass. Yeah, I'll, I'll you know... I'll, I'll take a look at the Bible, I'll take a look at these things, you know, when I have some time and when I'm not in a hurry and when I don't have to get home and do other stuff. No, our relationship with the Lord is meant to be personal and wonderful and powerful. It's supposed to be a lasting love that impacts every decision that we make. A place of abiding and delighting. That's what Jesus described in the Bible. Jesus drove out those who carried wares. Look at verse 17. It says, Then Jesus taught and he said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus called their attention to Isaiah and to Jeremiah. In Isaiah, he pointed out that the true purpose of the temple uh, was to be a place of prayer for all nations. In Jeremiah, he pointed out that the Jews had often perverted the house of God throughout their history. Verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, And they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. I love this. Not because we see the hatred of the scribes, but because we see the heart of the Savior. Our God is a God of action and instruction. This is very important. God is a God of instruction and a God of action, both of those things. Because as we receive his instruction, it should cause us to take some action. His word and his power are not delivered to us so that we can simply catalog them in our intellect, but they're delivered to us so that we can be filled and stirred and directed to do all that the Lord desires us to do. That's why God speaks to us. That's why God fills us with his spirit. That's why God empowers us, because he's a God of instruction and a God of action. Therefore, our faith should be one of instruction, receiving instruction and partaking in action. So what is it that God desires us to do? I think we find our answer by asking this question. Why did Jesus cleanse the temple that Monday? Why did he go in and do this? I was thinking about this and it was kind of, kind of confusing to me for a minute because for four days, four days after this event, he'd be crucified and the temple would be done. The veil would be torn from top to bottom and God says, hey, no, 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 there is no separation anymore. It's just you and me. And so for, in four days, none of that was even going to matter. There was going to be no more animal sacrifices required. There was going to be none of that. All of that law was going to be done away with because we were going to have the new covenant in Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross. So why did Jesus do this just four days before such a dynamic shift was going to happen? I put forth to you that he did it because he didn't want anything to hinder a person to coming to God even for a moment. He didn't want anyone to burden 
God's people. He didn't want anyone to take advantage of a person who was coming to meet with the Lord. He didn't want anyone to put a separation between that person and himself. He is a Savior who is faithful and who is powerful and who is personal. And he had already cleansed this temple once back in John chapter 2. And now in his patience and in his righteousness, he was doing it again so that people could come unobstructed into his presence to have a relationship with him. That's why he did it. As we gather, the Lord is with us. The church is the house of the Lord where he comes and meets with his people. As individuals, we constantly have the Holy Spirit living within us. We quite literally are temples of the Lord. And so as we spend some time this week thinking about Easter, thinking about Christ's life and death and resurrection, let's commit to evaluating our hearts and our attitudes and our activities according to the heart of God and according to His Word which He has delivered to us. Let's purpose to take some time and say, Lord, you know, I, I know that you want me to have the kind of life that I read about in your word. I know that you've looked at me and evaluated me and you've gifted me and, you, and you've poured into me and you've given me your spirit and you've done all these things. You've prepared a life for me to live, a work for me to do. You've given me people to impact with your grace. And I don't want anything to hinder me from that. I don't want anything to burden me or obstruct me from that. I I don't want anything to keep me from having the kind of relationship that you want me to have with you. Jesus Christ came to earth and he put on humanity on my behalf and on your behalf. He then died on a Roman cross so that he could take away my sin and your sin. And then most importantly, he rose again so that he could give us victory in life and victory over death. He did all of this and all the while he removed everything that might separate us from him. He removed guilt, he removed sin, he removed legalism, he removed the priesthood, he removed all of that so that it was just us and him. It was just me and God, and that nothing could separate us from him, and nothing can burden me. And he says, no, I'm taking that away, I don't want you to be obstructed, I don't want you to be hindered, I just want it to be you and me in this relationship that I've set up. He's removed those things so that we can come to him directly, and his desire is to cleanse us so that our lives can be a center of prayer, a center of worship, a daring testimony to the nations that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, King forever, like He spoke in Isaiah. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. That's who I am in Jesus Christ. And so this week, as we're focusing on Easter and thinking about the Lord, allow Him to do His cleansing work. Set aside any attitude or any activity that would hinder your walk with the Lord and move forward as an astonishing example of God's power and His love on the earth. Amen?